welcome to the Tapestry Podcast. My name is Chris Turner. Tapestry is the adoption and foster care ministry of Irving Bible Church in Irving, Texas. Joining me today on the podcast is the executive director of Tapestry, Ryan North, and his wife, Kayla. Hi, guys. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. I wanted to have you both on today so we could talk about fear responses. Most kids from hard places deal with heightened levels of stress and fear, and it's really critical for parents to understand how pervasive those fears can be and what that looks like in our children's behaviors and responses. So, Kayla, could you recap for us what defines a hard place? Well, when we're talking about kids from hard places, we're talking about kids who've come um, from an environment where there was prenatal stress, maybe there was early medical trauma, or um, some kind of a difficult labor and delivery, um, maybe abuse, neglect, or even some other kind of trauma. Those are the six risk factors that uh, Dr. Purvis and Dr. Cross talk about in their book, The Connected Child. Thanks, Kayla. So considering these risk factors that define a hard place, how do those manifest as fear responses in our kids? So one of three responses is going to happen with our kids. We call it fight, flight, and freeze. A lot of people are familiar with fight and flight. I think freeze is probably the one that's most often overlooked, right? We know kind of what fight looks like typically, although there's some other responses that fight might look like, um, such as fight might just be, uh, might not be physically fighting with somebody. It could be um, arguing, right? It could be, um, getting a little more aggressive with your language, right? Mm-hmm. Or even just refusing to do something. It could look like maybe even defiance right? Um, when we're having a fight response, right? So they might say, I'm not going to do that. You can't make me do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say the emphatic no. Right, exactly. And those those fight responses oftentimes just get labeled as kids that are unwilling to work or unwilling to do what you're asking them so they get labeled as defiant versus recognizing that it's actually a fear response. Mm -hmm. Um, And then flight doesn't have to mean just physically running away. You know, it can be that class clown that just, you know, goofs around instead of answering the question because that could be their way of getting away from what scares them, giving the right answer. So, for instance, one of our kids, when he's confronted with something that he's done wrong, and we want to just talk about it. We want to say something about it. He will actually begin to act silly, make goofy faces. And that can be really unnerving right. because you think, take me seriously. I'm mm-hmm. trying to tell you why that wasn't okay. If you don't recognize that that's a flight response. Mm-hmm. He's afraid of getting in trouble. He's afraid of being told that he's wrong. And so he begins to act goofy and silly in order to escape. That's mm. his flight mechanism. I think un- until I understood that flight wasn't, you know, because I think I always just assumed, like most people do, that flight response was just physically physically right. removing yourself from the situation. But I have really paid attention to this since we kind of became aware of this over the years. And I noticed that in difficult situations, um, I always try to make light of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I feel the feel the need to be funny, and I always think, oh my gosh, that's in, inappropriate. Um, varying levels of inappropriate. Like if you're in a difficult meeting, um, you know, people like this um, who we we have to sort of just try to because I convince myself I'm just trying to break the tension, right? But it really is a flight response from from the tense situation. So um, you know, that was something that I didn't, wasn't like intuitive to me that flight would be 
you're still physically there, but your certainly your behavior was fleeing from the situation. Right. right. You're like checking out of the situation. Yeah. You don't want to be a part of whatever checking it is, good. and that's a fear. That's a fear response, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I always thought it was just that kid that got up and ran away when something bad right. happened, right? And that can that can totally be it too. I mean, we have kids that do that in our house as well. But I think the more atypical would be those kids. Not, maybe not atypical. That's maybe not even the right phrase to say because I think it probably happens more than we, more than we think. Mm-hmm. But I think our our usual go to okay if we think of a flight response is when a kid actually just runs away. So more often than not, people are choosing to remove themselves from a situation, which which we, what we think of as typical. Um, you know, because there are kids who do who do we, you know we call them runners. Mm-hmm. Um, who do try to flee from the situation, and, and the problem with 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 that um, the flight response for a lot of our kids when they do physically try to flee flee the situation is they don't head upstairs; they head out the front door. Mm. Now we've got lots of stories of um, of you know of parents uh, who have adopted kiddos who've, who've said, "Hey, what do we need to do in this situation? My kid has gone." And there's a the, the story from the look at the family in Houston where they called Michael Monroe and Michael said, "Hey, just walk behind him to make sure he's safe. Safe. Don't engage him. And after a while, um, you'll be able to talk to him." And they made it all the way to McDonald's <laughs> a few blocks away, and they ended up having ice cream together. But um, we've traditionally thought of that as as the runner, the flight response. Uh, before we talk about freeze, though. Fight or flight, you'll hear that a lot. Most people are really um, apprised of fight or flight in terms of fight, whether that be physical or verbal, or flight in removing yourself from the situation. Um, The nuance of the the flight response being um, fleeing the situation emotionally while staying physically present is something that's that's new to most people. Freeze is really a a great new concept for people because in the same way that people have no problem understanding left brain, right brain, this whole concept of downstairs, upstairs brain. Mm-hmm. Um, when we teach on that, uh, you can see people like, oh, like, like there's clarity. Yeah, like it then, all of a sudden makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. like they hadn't thought about that. The problem with that, um, and just understanding fight or flight, because you'll be fight or flight, fight or flight, is that our schools and our churches, school, church, home, right? Mm-hmm. That's the three places most our kids spend the majority of their time. Um, part of the problem there is that when they don't understand what a freeze response is, uh, the kid's labeled as defiant. Mm-hmm. And the D word is certainly not a word that you want following you around at church or at school because that is big business to undo that. Um, think about the fear that a child is expressing when they just freeze mm-hmm. in that moment. And that happens a lot, you know. Well, you've got those kids that hide under the table, those kids that, Literally, you can't move them. Like you want them to go from one place to another, and they are frozen in place. Um, or they won't try something new. They just, oh, I can't. I can't do that. I can't mm-hmm. do it. Those, those are all, you know, freeze responses, right? They have frozen. They have decided they can't do it. Maybe they are afraid of getting it wrong. Right. Maybe they are afraid of, you know, looking silly in front of their classmates. You know, I mean, those kids that won't get up and. Um, you know, sing in front of the group, you know, even if it's with other people, they won't get up and do a presentation. They have frozen in place and it looks like they're refusing to do what you're asking them to do. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, they are afraid of whatever the situation, afraid of being laughed at, afraid of being made fun of, afraid of others staring at them, whatever the situation might be. 
they literally are frozen. It's not like they went, well, I don't want to do this. They, they are, they're, they're physically incapable. They have shut down. And I've noticed that one of our kids is definitely a, his response is definitely fight. And it's, it's verbal. I mean, he's not physical at all. Mm-hmm. It's, and that to me comes across as more defiance. But I've really, once we kind of learned this concept, I really noticed one of our other kids that his response is more freeze than yeah. anything else. And it took a while to kind of wrap my head around what exactly was going on with him. Yeah, because it can look like shy or just yeah. a whiny kid or just a kid that doesn't want to participate. But really, it could be fear. Mm-hmm. And when you notice it, I think that's the that's really the key is when you realize, oh, my goodness, this is a fear response that my child is having. Mm-hmm. And you can have compassion for them because this doesn't just happen to kids from hard places. But it definitely happens more often because our kids will revert back to fight, flight, or freeze more often because their world has been kind of chaotic and out of control. And so they are um, going back to what they know. They're overdeveloped amygdala, basically. They, they live there longer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, so. and I think one of the things that um, we don't completely understand is the signs of living in a state of fear, right? Because um, when you look at some of our kiddos who have been home for 10 years and you look them in the eye, big dilated pupils. Mm-hmm. When we sit down for dinner, they sit with just one half of their behind on the chair, but they're all ready to run. Our oldest son, no matter where we eat, he always finds a seat where he can see an exit, whether it be a restaurant, our house, my in-laws, my parents, friends, whatever. So he is in this heightened state of alertness mm-hmm. because of the fear and I think sometimes to our, to our detriment in our parenting, we don't recognize those things. We say, well, why can't my kid just sit at the table and eat like he's supposed to? <laughs> right. Because he has memories, explicit or implicit, right, of um, hitting the fan every time they sat down for dinner in the house he spent the first few years of his life in. So he is literally ready to run. And, you know, we pick the battle about sitting, you know, I used to be this guy. You got to sit nicely at the table. You got to eat. You know, I'm, I'm from a country that's part of the British Commonwealth. We eat, we have manners at the dinner right. table, boys and girls. <laughs> There's decorum. We eat properly with our knives and forks. Now I'm trying to like force a kid to sit still who's like, okay, I have got to have an escape plan. And I think that we amplify the child's fear. When you watch those videos of Dr. Purvis, she always tells the kids to give her eyes. Mm-hmm. But but she but she always was so good at knowing what they were able to give her, because mm-hmm. some kids can make the eye contact. Some kids, if they will just give her eye contact for like one second in passing, she'll she'll apl- uh, she'll praise them and move on. And I think that um, particularly in Christian parenting, when we confront our children about their behavior, they have to stand still and look us in the eye. Mm-hmm. And we fight that battle because they can't stand still. They're fidgeters. They have sensory issues. And they certainly can't look us in the eye because it's scary for that little child to look the, the big authority figure in the eye. And then we make the battle about, you're not looking at me. You need to look at me. I mean, how many times have you heard parents do that? Right. I've, I've done that. Yeah. That's I've done something that. I still struggle with. Kayla, you've done that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So and I think that's one of the mistakes we make by not understanding how much of our children's behaviors are driven by the constant state of fear. Or if nothing else, the, the heightened state of alertness that they, that they are living in. Um, if we understand that, 
we can parent them better because we amp the situation up with our insistence that they stand there with their hands at their side right. like a good boy. Like a good boy. I mean, I've said these things to my employees mm-hmm. before, right? Because if they don't stand still, they're, they're automatically bad boys by extension. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We, just, we really amp things up with our kiddos. Um, so the, the, the problem now for us is that we do know better. Yes. Well, and I think once we know better, then we have to say, well, what do we do? Like, yeah. how do we respond when our kids do those things, right? Mm-hmm. What do, what's the next step? And in connected parenting, the next step is to connect with them, right? I mean... So we respond to that fear with connection, not with pushing them deeper into that fear right. that they have, right? Kind of taking off on that, talking about the difference between safety and felt safety probably seems appropriate because this was a concept that when we first encountered this material, I probably struggled with a lot because, again, I, I didn't know any better. So um, there is a difference between being safe and feeling safe. Right. Ask any nervous flyer. Statistically, they're safe. That right. just does not matter to them. They don't feel safe because they're in an aluminum can 35,000 feet above the earth. It has wings and <laughs> engines. It's fine. But you know what I'm saying? Right. If you, don't, if you don't feel safe, I cannot logically convince you that you are safe. I have to make you feel safe. So a friend of mine, she would always be at the front of the car pickup line for school. And she'd get there, and she'd be front front in line. And um, so her kid, as soon as he walked out of the building, he could see her standing right there. Right. And one day, something happened, and she couldn't get to car line, right? And so she calls a friend and says, hey, can you go pick up my son from school? And the friend says, sure. But the friend doesn't get there early enough, and so the friend is not in the front of the line. Not to mention her son doesn't realize that mom's not coming. Mom's not going to be there to pick him up. So mom is not there. He goes outside and he can't see mom's car. He's looking in the car line. He's looking all around and he begins to get anxious. Now he's at school with his teachers and his classmates. He is completely safe. There Mm -hmm. is nothing unsafe about the situation, but he did not feel safe at all. He was completely terrified that mom had forgotten to come pick him up. And, and so the friend gets there, probably one of the last ones in line because she hadn't been planning on going to car line. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she gets there and she says, Hey, your mom asked me to come get you. And so he's like, okay. And he goes home. And then after that, he would just get really panicky about school and pick up and ask like a zillion questions about what time are you going to be there? Are you going to be in the line? And, And just got really, I mean, he didn't feel safe any longer because he was afraid mom wasn't going to be there right. at the beginning of car line. Mm-hmm. And so f- mom had to make sure she arranged her day to be there at the start of car line because otherwise he was panicky and behaviors didn't, you know, behaviors were out of control and the day just unwound for them because he didn't feel safe if when he walked out of that door he couldn't see mom right. in line. One of the things that, that we've come to understand over the years um, something that really that really helps um, the kids with, with their fear and helps kind of calm them is uh, instead of asking them, what do you want? Asking them, what do you need? Behavior is a need expressed. Right. And I think once you can grasp that truth, that behavior is just an expression of a need, it changes your response to it. It, it has to change your response to it. And so, you know, it took us a long time over the course of many years to be able to look like and say, hey, what do you need? What do you need? Because it it does a lot of good things. It, first of all, lets them know that you're attuned to them. 
It helps them understand that they are expressing a need, and it helps them get their need met because generally, you know, we talk about proper nutrition, hydration, and sleep. Well, what we know in our house, um, if we're not give some of if our kids are on like a two-hour snack schedule, she she can tell she'll tell me you know the kids were kind of like you know it was wild this afternoon they were like oh no they, they should have had a snack thirty minutes mm. ago that's just a physical need yeah right yeah I mean if we don't meet their needs for proper nutrition um, hydration those things I mean we're going to see behavior problems happen and the same thing is true if we don't meet their their needs in a moment of fear right so if we can help give words to the fear so one of our kiddos um, when it was time to give a presentation would just clam up even though every week at school he would give a presentation mm-hmm. and every other kid in the class gave a presentation every single week every single week he would freeze and I could have just shoved him up there and said do it but instead I said what do you need what do you need buddy I want you to come with me okay I can come with you mm-hmm. Because our co-op that we're in, I'm actually in the classroom. So mm-hmm. that was easy enough for me to do. And he gave me words. So then he would stand in front of the classroom. Right. And so eventually we could work up to where he could practice more and we could do some things to make him feel safer mm-hmm. in the classroom. But I had to get to a point where I realized it was fear and not refusal to do what he was being asked to do in class. Right. And then figure out how I could help him feel safe. What's going to make you feel safe? Well, his sister's in the class. So sometimes his sister, they would do the presentation together. And that helped him feel safe because she was up there with him, right? And, I mean, he's still little. So eventually, yes, mom's not going to be able to be up there when you do your presentation. But he's eight. Right. You know, I, I can arrange his environment now to help him feel safe. You know, does he have to go up in the front and get an award if that scares him no end of the year ceremony they they were giving awards we had a field day and he didn't want to give he didn't want to get the award mm. he didn't want the little medal because everybody was going to be looking at him and mm. he's afraid of everybody looking at him because he doesn't have a lot of self-confidence and so whenever we said you know go up there to get your award and he said i don't want to i had to listen to that mm. because otherwise he was going to freeze up and he wasn't, I was going to have to physically put him there. Right. And so if we listen to our kids, if they give us something and we listen to that, then we can arrange their environment where they feel safe with us and they feel safe to tell us what they need. I like what you said there about how you could force him to go up there. But you know, if he doesn't want to do it, there's no point in forcing him. Whenever we get a chance to, to, to train or speak, I try to make two things clear. Um, because I think they're really, really important in terms of relationship with our children. And number one is what the person who's walking by you in the grocery store thinks about how you're handling a particularly difficult moment with your child is less important than your relationship with your child. We get that backwards in parenting. Mm-hmm. We had a, the Created to Connect uh, group at the church, and I, we talked about parenting and what motivates you. And finally, somebody was brave enough, and she raised her hand. She said, look, it matters to me what the person at the grocery store thinks about my parenting. And she was a brave soul because she's the only person who's willing to admit what everybody else was thinking, right? right? But the other thing that we try to communicate is, like, once you know better, you have to do better. And so now that you understand that it is fear-driven, that freezing is a legitimate response as much as fight or flight, that you have to parent the person that's in front of you. You know, we talk a lot about being a detective 
in your child's behavior. We, we encourage people to make like a parenting journal. What are the triggers? You know, what's one of the things we talked about a few minutes ago? Kayla really noticed that if, if we're not putting some sort of, you know, a granola bar mm-hmm. into our kids' hands every 120 minutes, behavior really atrophies. And so you have to understand, you know, what drives your kids' behaviors. And certainly um, a big part of that is the fears that drive their responses. You know, we had a guy ask us a couple of weeks ago, this just sounds like you're making excuses for your kids' behaviors. And I said, no, it's not making excuses for your kids' behaviors. What it is doing is saying you need to be aware of who that person is that you're parenting. You need to know what they need. And if you don't set the deck and create an environment where they can succeed, you have to take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we have to take responsibility for is that our kids do come with an over you know, overactive amygdala because it's overdeveloped because they've, you know, there are a few of our kids who don't come from a situation where there's chaos because of that. Uh, the fear response is their go-to response. As parents, we have to understand that fear is real. It's a big driver of our children's behaviors and we need to address their fears. So like Kayla said, our son freezes when he's required to go in front of the classroom. So she addresses the need and his need is he doesn't he needs to not feel like he is alone mm-hmm. up there, right? So we really uh, and the hard work for parents is to, is to try to get um, the staff at their at their school, the kids' school, to understand that, and to get the staff at their church, sadly, to understand that as well. So um, yeah, I don't really know what more to say except that free is real, and our kids' responses to that are very real. And if we are the kind of parents that they need, then we will understand that and parent from that place. I would like to thank Ryan and Kayla for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Chris, for having us. Yeah, thanks. If you have a question for us that will fit into 140 characters, you may tweet it to us at tapestryibc. If you require a bit more room, you can email us at tapestry at irvingbible.org. You may also find us on Facebook at tapestryibc. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Just search for Tapestry Adoption Podcast. You can also subscribe from our website, tapestryministry.org. Thank you for listening.